Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning. I was just too tired yesterday. Had a lot of social things to do, so I didn't um, do any podcasts. But uh, today's uh, podcast, which is sort of a continuation of Old Baltimore from last week, when I spoke about Rabbi Schwab and the Adlers. So uh, my good friend Dr. Morris Freeman is sponsoring today um, in honor of his friends, the Mandelbaum, I'll read in a second, having to do with an ancestor there, who I knew very well in Baltimore, Henry P. Cohn, uh, and herein lies a tale. So this is Dr. Mo Friedman, and I'm just reading here in honor of my esteemed friends, Benjamin and Sippy Mandelbaum of Lakewood, <laughs> the dynamic duo of Chesed, Torah, and Yerushalayim. They set an example for the rest of us, and also is sponsored in memory of Benjamin's grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Henry Picone, Rabbi Katz will soon reference, or Shame Dover in Baltimore of yesteryear. Yes, true. My own mother, this is Dr. Mo talking. May she be blessed with health and arigas yamin, Mrs. Etta Friedman, who's a 1940s, 50s from Baltimore historian. <laughs> no, that she lived in. Always referred to them as the Fruma Cones. She explained that of all the many Cone families listed in the phone book in those years, there were only one that was from. And Benyamin and Sippy are a rightful heir to the Cone Sterling good name, not only in Frumkite, but also Ehrlichite. Unquote. So that speaks for itself. I, the, the origin of this is as follows. I was speaking last week because the Adlers asked me to say something about what I spoke about last time. And Derek Hagav, I remember, uh, and sharing by way of historical, um, unusual uh, information, this uh, letter to the editor, one of two, which uh, I had from Rabbi uh, uh, Schwab from yesteryear. And mainly because nobody, you know, nobody knew about, knows about it. You know what I mean? In other words, it's a... Uh, it's a piece of historical uh, information. And I'm pretty sure the Schwab biographers don't know about it. Now, um, similarly, uh, there were two uh, very important uh, letters, I, I thought. And uh, one was from Rabbi Schwab, and the other one was from Henry P. Cohn, who was this from Balabas from long ago. This is the Cohn family. It's like the Adler is even older. You had in Baltimore. I don't know if you have it in other towns. I mean, it must be. But I just don't know. Their families just always stayed religious, and that means uh, from the 1800s with no chinuch whatsoever. No, there's no day schools or anything like that at all. So you had to all pick it up at home and, and the shul. That was it. And the Cone family, you're talking about the 1840s or whatever, so it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's really hard at that time. And somehow or other, down till today, my uh, classmate, my good friend Jeffrey Cone, is from that family, uh, um, and they're still uh, uh, running around today. So, uh, of course, now you have day schools and the Beziaka is a different world, but imagine what it was like when none of that existed. And I don't believe that most of the people listening to this, and I'm speaking now at the moment, would be religious if enough for the school systems that we now have in place. That's just a simple fact, okay? That's just a simple fact. So when you talk about people that did it somehow with, without schools, um, that is unusual. Now, uh, the person I'm talking about was Henry uh, P. Cohn, 
who uh, I knew very well, even though he's 40 years older and more than 40 years older than me, because he was very good friends with uh, my parents, with my family, and then with me. So it was all my simchas and everything. Uh, this is somebody from, as they say, old uh, Baltimore, who was born here and lived all of his life here, and had a Baltimore accent and all the rest of it. And one of these uh, German Jews, so he never spoke Yiddish or anything like that. Uh, and yet, was a total Shomer Shabbos and, and, and beyond all of his life. Uh, I think he was in the advertising business. He worked for a company, if somebody remember correctly. And uh, was, was uh, uh, obviously had to be somebody of a very strong uh, personality. He was a very nice guy also. He was uh, good friends with my family because of a tragedy, actually. It's an interesting story. They had a son who uh, was 12 or 13 years old, something like that, and was walking home from Shul. This is the old Baltimore downtown. Uh, and a tree fell on him. He was with a group of people. In fact, uh, Joe Shavrick, you know, was a good friend of mine, was one of the people walking there. And the tree just happened to hit one person. Unfortunately, it was his son. And it killed him. It was a terrible tragedy. If you're from old-time Baltimore, you will remember on all the ventures and things like that, they used to have, he sponsored them. He used to have in memory of, of his uh, son, uh, uh, Robert Gothcone. Uh Now, he, that boy was in my father's class in, in TA in this school the year that happened. And so, um, you're talking about 1954, I think it was. Uh, so you're talking about not long after the Second World War. So um, they bonded Mr. Cohn and my father simply because, I guess, they both lost kids. They both lost family. My father in the Holocaust, and Mr. Cohn, the Cohn family, in this uh, um, sad uh, incident, you can see. And all I know is after that, they had a lot to do with each other, even though my father was the opposite of a Baltimore native and all the rest of it. And, you know, culturally, they were very different, but uh, they really were uh, close friends. And as I said before, he was always at all my simchas and all that. And um, it was all, <laughs> he always had kisses Elio at, at, at our brises. And... Um, was a very fine person. And uh, I want to say this. Uh, I know, because I'm talking about the old Baltimore before all this stuff existed now. I know four or five boys, roughly my age, a little older, whatever, that they became religious um, because of him. In other words, somehow they, they they lived in the Park Heights area. I'm not going to say any names because some of them are very from today. I'm not sure they want to know. Uh but they somehow were, were, were drawn to him and his wife, Mrs. Cohn, Charlotte Cohn. And um, they're very, very American, but very, very from. And these boys, little by little, it didn't happen overnight, would come over to the house and then go with them to Shoal and then come there for Shabbos and Shabbos meals and this and that and the other. And slowly but surely became fully observant. And this is before NCSY existed. And frankly, it's before the Chabad was around and all that. Uh, and he wasn't a... Kira professional that he just modeled it. You understand? No, if you're very yashras and so forth, um, and he had a very dry sense of humor <laughs> of a certain type, and uh, <laughs> the old Baltimore type is like my father-in-law. You know those guys. There's some shtick with old Baltimore. They don't wear coats. You understand? <laughs> Could be freezing cold in the winter. You just walk in your regular jacket like on Chavez. You know. I think I said it once. I still remember? He walked into the sheriff's sister on some old German. You know, immigrant said, "You know, in Germany, <laughs> in Germany, if somebody didn't have a coat, it means he couldn't afford one." Henry goes like this. Well, then go back to Germany. <laughs> you know? That's a. 
But I knew all these old guys, Mr. Sykes, or they for some reason there was they were opposed to wearing coats. It's a it's just a certain Michigas. And he was always a fast walker. I, again, I have so many memories. I remember I was at a cousin's house. And at that time, this is many decades ago, I went from Mincha to the Sheriff's Israel to the German Shoal. And Henry Cohn lived a block away. In other words, I was a block closer to the Shoal than he was. And as I walked out to go to Mincha, I was a young guy. I see out of the corner of my eye that he's leaving his house. And I know he's a fast walker, and I said to myself, just very nonchalantly, I'm going to walk so fast he's not going to overtake me this time. And I just nonchalantly was walking, really turning on the speed, and just when I got close to the shoal in Glen Amion Park, he goes right by me. And he says, not bad for a young man, <laughs> you know. So he had that kind of dry sense of humor. But as I say before, uh, you know, he was uh, quite a uh, an interesting person, and he's one of the builders of the base Yaakov in Baltimore. We had a lot of conversation. He was in the service, by the way, after the, one of these guys got lucky, he was in the service after the war, you know. And I remember he had trouble with the, I'm going back many years now. You know, what do you do for kosherus? So if you're Henry Cohn, you don't eat, you know what I mean? You eat raw potatoes and stuff like that. Uh, but he told me he knew another guy. He never told me the guy's name. whose father was a big rabbi in New York. And... His father, the rabbi, told his son, you're going in the army, you're taking a vacation from Kashras. That's what he told me, you know. For a year or two that he was in the army, he just ate whatever they gave him. And then, I'm telling you, I'm telling you a story he told me. He said he was, for two years in the army, he ate whatever they gave him. When the when the service was over, he came back to America, he went back to Kashras. He, he had a vacation, <laughs> you know. But uh, if you're Henry Cohen, you didn't take no vacations. That's not who he was. So it's interesting. And I recall... Is this, I don't know why it sticks in my mind. There were times we had trouble with Kashras and with Shabbos as one would have in the service. I think we're talking about 45, 46, if I remember correctly. And the guy who helped him was a reform rabbi, a chaplain in the army, Browdy, who later on was a well-known reform rabbi in uh, Providence, I believe. And um, and I just happened to know this, this rabbi, Browdy, he was a reform rabbi, but he was... Very sympathetic to the Orthodox. He made a speech that, in his opinion, all the Reform rabbis, this I'm talking about in the 30s now, that all the Reform rabbis should take off one year to learn in an Orthodox yeshiva. Isn't that interesting? So he said, like, there was an Orthodox chaplain that didn't help him, and the Reform rabbi helped him. And he used to have all kinds of stories along similar lines. Um, well, wait, I won't go into that. Uh, so here you're talking about, like I say, from long ago. Now, uh, I have many good memories. And by the way, it was really yeah, very practical. Just want you to know, when I got married, um, so uh, many years ago, so we bought our house just before we got married. So notice, the night we got married, we moved into our house. We didn't go to a hotel or nothing like that. The night we got married, we moved into our house, a brand new. But the house was completely empty. I, I mean, literally, there wasn't anything in there. Except it was two beds. There was nothing in the kitchen. You know, it was an empty room. You know, my wife had done whatever. There was an empty room. And there was nothing to sit down on. It was like, I think, one chair. And then one of these little uh, uh, stand-up tables you used to get with the green stamps. I mean, does anybody remember that? You used to get with the, you know, if you saved up with the green stamp. Like a little a little table. And that was the guns of business. But okay, you're just married. Who cares? And... The next morning, right after we're married, uh, is a knock on the door. Henry P. Cohn, 
with the same wedding gift he gave to everybody, which was four uh, chairs, four uh, plastic, you know, uh, um, you know what I mean, uh, chairs you, you, can, you can pull it together and pull apart. What am I thinking? Folding chairs, four plastic folding chairs. And uh, I still have them. And they're so practical <laughs> and very smart, you know, <laughs> because if there's one thing you need when you get married, it's chairs. Now, maybe I'm dating myself. The young people now, as far as I can see, they buy a whole, you know, furniture and everything. And firsthand, secondhand, they have these gamaks. It's a new world. I'm starting to sound like an old cochety, <laughs> whatever. But anyway, now I'll get to my point. And that is that a very unusual, very nice person. His wife also, by the way, they made my Sheva brachas. I still remember. I still remember that. And um, and they're very American, though. It's it's so interesting. They're they're very from. They kept everything. Uh, and uh, but you know they're very American. I remember the food at their house. Everything was not like the Eastern European Jewish food that I grew up with. Cause he he and his parents and grandparents were all from the old Baltimore. They they, they become very Maryland type. It's so interesting. You don't see these types. Uh, not, at least I don't see these types in any places. And I told my wife we were just married. I said, this is like eating trafe. You know? Because the style of food, whatever they had there, the chicken, everything, was very Maryland. It wasn't, but it was 100% Jewish. Uh, and in fact, he used to make funny. So people say, I don't talk Yiddish. I'm not from. But I don't work on Shabbos. And this guy's talking Yiddish. and working on Shabbos. So which one of us is from? Anyhow, so what I mentioned last week was that in the old Baltimore Jewish Times, which used to be the magazine, every uh, town in America of any size, once upon a time, had a Jewish newspaper, came out once a week. Weekend. You know, right? I mean, you know, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, uh, Chicago, Boston, Cleveland, Cincinnati, St. Louis, you know, you know what I mean? Any town of size, and even smaller ones. And it was a flourishing thing once upon a time. Today... A different sociology here in Baltimore. My wife has a magazine comes out once a month. It's from Jeff Cohn. It has a thing online, uh, the Baltimore Jewish Life. It's you know, there's different modes. But it used to be that it was always a magazine or a newspaper, whatever you want to call it, weekly in every uh, town. Not from, but I want to be clear, but but not anti from. It was the old American Jewry in which the uh, fault lines were not so sharply etched, and uh, the discourse was more of a uh, general communal and cholesterol-type discourse. They're all very Zionist, because that time that was everybody was pushing for that. And uh, you didn't really find, you know, people would... I mean, they weren't from, but they didn't criticize the Orthodox. You get what I'm saying? They're pretty good about this. I, I mentioned, mentioned this last week. The reason I, I'm saying this is because uh, about 20 years ago, a little bit less, I had occasion, I was asked by the yeshiva here to write a, a bio for Rashiba for Abba Ruderman, and it involved me doing research, and I went through all the old Jewish times. I mean, I read like a ton. You know what I'm saying? Week after week after week, year after year. You're talking about approximately from 1920 you know, till whatever, and certainly the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, without question. Uh, to tell you the truth, there used to be a different Jewish newspaper here in Baltimore, which was interesting in a different way, called the Jewish Comment, up to the First World War, approximately. Then when that died, the Jewish Times took it over. So meanwhile, 
if you're a historian or somebody looking back and reading through, it's it's like a movie. You, you know what I mean? You see week after week the story going by you. Uh, and you re it's, it's like taking the original movies that were, were photographed one after the other. And you see the March of Time, as they used to call it. So almost always I saw that there was an absence of criticism of the from. It's interesting. But rather, the Jewish Times, which is the name of the Baltimore Jewish Times, I mean, they would have a lot of reform stuff and all that. Okay. You know, and at that time, it was actually popular to publish sermons, believe it or not. And um, what do you call it? They, they um, how should I put it? They in included, um, you know, all kind of, uh, I mean, non-kosher things like, of course. However, they also included a lot of um, from stuff. You know, if there was a synagogue, there used to be a lot of shoals. If there was a synagogue that was having a seum or uh, or a dance <laughs> or, you know, a dvar Torah or anything, uh, you know, religious was also in there. In other words, it was the style of the Jewish Times and other magazines to be the paper of record, which is a good thing. So in other words, you go through page after page and you see the Reform is having a dance, the Orthodox is having a seum, this guy's having a, a speaker here, you know what I mean? It could be a from speaker, a Russia sheep from Europe. Next to it will be, you know, a, a Zionist secular speaker. You see what I'm saying? So it's like a, it's like reading a newspaper. You just see what's happening in this case in Baltimore across the spectrum of the community. It's going to be a you know a socialist, whatever, and that's what was happening in in the Jewish community. You, the reader, just reading it. You don't have to pick. You pick the one you want. Uh, and that's usually a formula for success because what it meant was that you know, everybody in the community subscribed to the paper. And if you had some announcement you wanted to make that you want to bring to the attention of the community, so you put it in there because like a paper of record. Uh, take, for example, the Neri's Royal Yeshiva or the TA, the day school. I mean, plenty of people, we're talking about a time when plenty of plenty of people who supported these institutions that were interested in what we know that we're not from. They were not, no, by that I mean they were not personally observant of mitzvahs, but they contributed to these gods. And believe me, in Baltimore and elsewhere, most of the, uh, most of Sachinich were originally put together with non from money. By that I mean people who personally were not observant in their lives, uh, in many ways, but nevertheless, for one reason or another, had a soft spot for Yiddishkeit. And basically the idea was like this. I'm not a Shomer Shabbos. My kids are a Shomer Shabbos. But somebody should be a Shomer Shabbos. You know, like that. There was a lot of that. Today, I think there's a whole lot less of that. Things are much more polarized. And, you know, it's a different world. But I'm talking about long ago. There was an exception in the middle of 1943. And that had to do, as I mentioned last week, with what they called the Tehran children, the Alde Tehran. Which basically meant that there was a few, not many, uh, 200, something like that, 250 uh, children who somehow or other had not had escaped from Hitler, meaning I think they were in um, the the uh, the Russian zone or something like that. I don't mean they were captured by Hitler and escaped. I mean, they were able to, to uh, get out of that and ended up in Soviet Union. This is a time when orphans were everywhere. And, you know, uh, and dying right and left and being taken care of, not being taken care of. And this particular group 
uh, was allowed by Stalin to leave Russia, which was not so common. It wasn't so uncommon as you imagined during the Second World War, but was a, because Stalin originally was hooked up with Hitler, but then when Hitler attacked, and Stalin had to kiss up to to America and England, and even to Poland, believe it or not. And uh, in 1942, they allowed, uh, you know, like 25,000, uh, you know, Poles to leave the country and more later on and so forth. And uh, there were some children. Oh, I see. I'm just pulling up online. So it's a thousand kids altogether. Okay, so that's a lot or close to a thousand. Uh, so that's a fair amount. So the bottom line is the word got out to the Jews, Jewish organizations in America and in Palestine. Because those are the only ones, you know, in Europe they're being killed. The Jewish organizations in America and Palestine, uh, that there are a thousand kids here. Now everybody knew millions are getting killed, but you have a chance to save a thousand, it's a thousand. And they crossed the border from Soviet Union into Iran. And from Iran you could go to Israel. If you look at the map, you take a, a train. For example, that's how Menachem Begin came to Israel. He was in a Soviet concentration camp. And then, as a Pole... And then when the war changed, Hitler attacked Stalin, Stalin let these guys out, and Begin joined what they call the Polish army, and the army was allowed by Stalin to depart Russia, go to Iran, and from Iran they took a train straight to Israel, to Tel Aviv. Uh, and then Begin got out and said, I'm done, <laughs> I'll get off here, yeah, thank you. Uh, so that was a story with these kids. Now, I remember they didn't take a train exactly, some of them had to go by boat, and I think one of the boats was torpedoes. It's a concept business. You know, if you're interested, you'll Google Tehran children. You can see the whole story over there. It's a it's a sad story. Okay? Uh, so here are kids in the middle of the war. And the Jewish organizations like the Joint and the Zionists and the others are, are trying to uh, get control of the situation to help the kids. Uh, and they got them out and, they, and, and they're in Iran. Iran, you probably don't know this, was a semi-neutral country in World War II. Iran is 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 farther east in the Middle East. I think you know the map basically. You know, if you go from the Mediterranean, you got Syria and then Iraq and then Iran. So it's a long way. Uh, the Shah of Iran, the old man, Reza, or no, the whatever the father's name was, was actually pro Hitler. That's who he was. So as soon as Hitler attacked Stalin. Uh, the presence of a pro-German Iran was a, a threat to Russia. It was also a threat to the British because the British controlled the rest of the Middle East. And right after Hitler attacked Stalin, which was June of 41, they cut a deal, Hitler and Churchill. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Stalin and Churchill, Russia and England, cut a deal. We'll both invade and take over Iran before they can join Hitler. And we'll divide the country half and half. So Stalin will take over the northern half, and Churchill will take over the southern half for Kachava. And all during World War II, Iran was basically military occupied by the Russian army on the one hand, and by the British army on the other. And Tehran, the capital city, was like a neutral zone of some sort or another. But, they, but the Iranians knew they ain't going nowhere. And when they had the Tehran conference between Churchill and Stalin and Roosevelt, there was all kind of uh, things going on over there. And they had to promise Iran that they would that they would leave when the war was over, so Iran was just an interesting place. And remember, there are hundred thousand or more Jews at that time, also. So the Jews were happy that the British and the Russian army are there. First of all, it's business; <laughs> you sell to the soldiers. 
But second of all, if the Shah would have his way, the old man, maybe they'd go pro-Hitler and maybe they'd make laws against the Jews. So it was just a very interesting environment. And these children ended up being taken to Tehran. And then the question is, what do you do with them? And it was pretty clear that the proper thing, that everybody agreed with what I'm about to say. The proper thing to do with them, bring them there to throw. I mean, what else are you going to do? Now, these are orphans for the most part. In a few cases, the parents were also saved, but Bader Chla was the orphans. And what kind of, it's the middle of World War II, and this is Ud Mutzel Meish. Uh, and what are you going to do with these kids? Of course, you're going to send them to Israel. I mean, where else? Of course, you send them to Israel. By the way, the quotas were still the one America, not going to take them. You get what I'm saying? So the Jewish organizations uh, moved. Uh, pressure and everything with the uh, with the governments, and they got the British and everybody to agree these thousand children or however many hundred it was could come to Palestine because it wasn't so easy in World War II to get into Eretz Israel. The British had a blockade. I'm sorry to say. Okay, so physically, that's agreed upon, and everybody, including the Torah card, to agree they should come to Israel. Now, the problem is like this. The Jewish life was so divided at that time politically. You had religious versus not religious and Zionist versus non-Zionist. So to, to put it in, in, in simple, I'm oversimplifying, but to put it in simplistic terms, it's the uh, Zionist versus the Aguda. Because the Aguda's organization, which was tiny, was uh, not Zionist. Beshita. And as I mentioned last week, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, not today, there was such thing called an Aguda ideology, uh, where they tried to form a distinct identity. It's very interesting. This is not around today. The Aguda, after the Second World War, was taken over by the Russian Shivas, and they weren't interested in any ideology. You know who used to be into this? The Yekis, uh, Dr. Breuer, you know, Isaac Breuer, and things like this, tried to articulate a very distinctive Aguda ideology as a modern but super Haredi uh, movement. And by the way, Henry Kuhn, who I'm talking about, was into this. It's I remember it was unusual. He used to subscribe. Uh, I didn't know anybody like this. He used to subscribe to some Aguda uh, magazine or newspaper from England. Uh, I didn't know anybody in Baltimore like that. Where they really, you know, I forget what it was called. Maybe the Jewish Tribune. I forget. Where it really was like very ideological. You didn't see that in America. Not in Baltimore. You know, the Aguda was identical with the Yeshivas. <laughs> you know what I mean? With the base Yaakovs. But that's what it is. It's a matter. It's a matter of, of, of uh, getting what we would call today a Haredi education. wasn't any kind of particular shita. You understand? Today, the Aguda today doesn't have a shita. She is, the Aguda sells itself as sort of like a umbrella front organization to help the, the, the Moses Achinach and things like that. Um, it's just interesting. But I'm talking about a time when it was, um, as I said before, more sharply etched. And may I say... The Aguda before 1940 and the Aguda after 1940 is a different thing because once you have a state of Israel, that just created its own Metsias. It created its own dynamic. You understand? Uh, because in the year I'm talking about, 1943, the Aguda was very anti-Zionist. On the other hand, five years later, they signed the de- they were part of the signing of the Declaration of Independence of Israel. If you ever go to uh, Tel Aviv, uh, I've been there. They have what they, the the uh, the hall where Ben-Gurion proclaimed State of Israel in forty-eight, And you can go in, it's still set up the way it was then. And the Agudah's right there. Yeah, you know. Uh, may I say also, the Communist Party 
Also, the signers of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. Look it up. So, you know, the, the Holocaust and the uh, Israel's War of Independence and the Arabs trying to kill them did make some changes. But I'm talking about when, in World War II, when everybody was in tremendous, uh, what's the right word, tension and anxiety because six million were being killed uh, and nobody could do anything to stop it. It was just terrible. So the feelings were more hyper. So the long and the short of it is, you're going to bring these kids to Israel, but what are you going to do when they get to Israel? So design is so like this. The kids should be part of the new Eretz Israel. Therefore, they brought the Zionist, uh, you know, uh, institutions, uh, kibbutzim, moshavot, orphanages, whatever. Uh, I, what about the fact that these will be secular? So the Zionists, I guess, it's okay, you know, they'll be Jewish because, you know, religious, secular doesn't matter. So the religious parties, like the Mizrahi, said, no, if they come, you know, some of these kids came from from background, some didn't. Now, in the case of somebody who came very distinctly from a from background, it was hard to make the case that they didn't. But a lot of them, you ask these kids who were wandering for the last three years since 1939, your family was from, your family was not from back in Poland, who knows? You know, sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. So whenever a possible suffix, the, the Zionist, the secular Zionist said, well, then he, the, the, he belongs to us or she belongs to us. And if it was religious, then it's up for discussion. That's how it was. And the Mizrahi party was the religious Zionist party. They said they should come to like a Ben Akiva type place. What's wrong with that? Uh, the Aguda said that these kids, and the Aguda made a claim like this, all these kids came from very Haredi families, therefore they belong in Aguda institutions. So the whole thing became a political football uh, who gets to control these kids? Meaning, when they come to Israel, to Palestine, which place should they be sent to? Should they be sent to a, like an Agudah-type place, like Yeshiva or something like that? Or should they be sent to Mizrahi-type place? Or should they be sent to a secular Zionist-type place? That was the whole fight. And it is a fact that when the uh, secular Zionist organization sent youth uh, directors to the camps in Tehran to prepare the kids for Israel, they sent like, you know, my palm and all super anti from, and they told these kids, forget all the from kites, it's all a bunch of baloney, cut your pace, get rid of your yarmulkes, let's have mixed dancing, and you know, all this kind of, and stop keeping Shabbos and so forth. And they did do that, okay? Which uh, really enraged the from, although it's crazy because it's a tempest and a teapot. The Holocaust is going on, millions are being killed, and they're arguing over, you know, a few kids here and there. But that's what happened. And you can understand it. And uh, it was very tragic. And what happened was that the firm organization, especially Aguda, started a PR campaign in the press, attacking the Zionists for being anti-religious and therefore not representative of Judaism and all the rest of it, which drove the Zionists crazy because here they are in the middle of World War II trying to make the case that they represent the Jewish people and that after the war... The Jewish people deserve a state, and the Zionists are once in charge of the Jewish people, and they should be put in charge of the Jewish state. And now you have the Frum, who look Jewish and are very Jewish, and they're saying the Zionists are not Jewish. So it it, it made things very uh, bitter. And there were strikes and protests and this and that and the other. And it got into the Jewish press all over the place. And it made the Mizrahi, Maimon, you know, angry at the Aguda, so he sided with Ben Gurion, that just made the Aguda say, see, look what a bunch of lousy uh, things the Mizrahi is, that they're joining with the anti-from against the from over the fate of these children. And they made a whole big taram out of this. 
And to complicate it more, the chief rabbi of Palestine, Rabbi Herzog, sided with the Agoda, even though he's supposed to be in the Mizrahi side. And it was a whole mess. And in all this, so the Zions went crazy. And in the Jewish Times, in June, uh, they had a very unusual article by a guy named David Deutsch, who I don't know, but he, he used to, it used to be called, he used to have a, a column called Heard in the Lobbies. So I assume he means the lobbies of the government. And, and he was freaking out over this. Now, again, the Jewish Times was very Zionist. Uh, so usually they didn't bring in a good stuff. Some a little bit, you know, without comment. But this guy had a personal column in which he really, uh, let's put it this, he really uh, vented and ranted. And, and he said, and it's called Herd and Lobbies, Religion Run Amok. It's in June of 43. June of 43, that's when the Warsaw Ghetto and this stuff was all going on. In the middle of, the war was not over at all. Of... Uh, and he says, if you want an idea of why some Jews stay away from the synagogue, uh, it's a little blurry here, get some somebody to translate for you a Yiddish piece of diatribe issued under the name of Eliezer Silver, head of the Agudath Israel, the organization which would consign every Jew to the flames of hell unless he buys his religion at that particular stand, while other Jews are breaking their necks and their hearts, trying to get Jewish children out of the Nazi inferno, to be taken uh, anywhere that safety offers, the goodest Israel gentry cry out in effect, better for them to perish under the Nazi sword than at the end of Palestine if they're going to fall into the clutches of any other church than our own. According to this Eliezer Silver guy, a plan is underfoot to, quote, baptize these children when they get to Palestine and teach them the intricate art of eating tray for food. And since many of these people have long coats, corkscrew ear curls, known as payas, and attractive beards, it is easy to confuse them with saintly religious sages. Who are these Agudath Israel leaders in general? They believe Zionism is an interference with God's plans for the Jews. It certainly is an interference with plans to make a Palestine one big charity institution with each patient getting support from abroad in proportion to the daily pages he studies daily and have never been able to forgive those Jews who feel that God helps those who help themselves. From the very beginning of the Zionist experiment, these Agudath Israel folk have put every obstacle in the way to go to governments with their opposition. Officials who are only too happy, in other words, British officials who are only too happy to have the support of religion, quote-unquote, and their anti-Zionist program, were delighted with these, uh, quote-unquote, Orthodox allies. And the funny thing about the support that Agudas Israel gets, it comes from people who never even hear the strains of the organ on Yom Kippur, much less wear their tefillin every morning. Take, for example, the delicious interview which that great experiment of religious orthodoxy, the Freiheit, gave to Eliezer Silver. In other words, Rabbi Eliezer Silver, as part of the PR, spoke to all kinds of journalists and gave all kinds of interviews about the Alde Tehran uh, in order to put pressure on the Zionists. One of the papers he talked to was the Yiddish Communist newspaper. So this, the Communists, okay? So the Communists are publishing this only to stick it to the Zionists, not because the Communists agree with their Gura. So that's what this guy's making fun of. Take, for example, the delicious interview, which this great experiment of orthodoxy, Eliezer Silver, gave to the Freiheit. The Freiheit is the communist newspaper. For those who need captions, the Freiheit is the Yiddish Communist Daily, which all of a sudden now has discovered all ancient Jewish values. Eliezer, Eliezer Silver, he never calls him rabbi, says, we orthodox Jews never took the position that Jewish communists were out of the fold or outside the Jewish fold. We never permitted ourselves to be confused by those who, who threaten with the obsexias 
and he assured the communists that they are good as Israel, um, that, that the good as Israel insisted that the American Jewish Conference must make room for um, for them in their deliberations. I won't explain. That's too complex to explain. And the, these are the gentry who calumniate, in other words, who say Lashon Hara about Henrietta Zoll, the 82-year-old mother of youth Aliyah, because Henrietta Zold was this, she's a lady who founded the Hadassah. Her father had been a rabbi in Baltimore of a reformed, a semi-reformed temple. And uh, she was in charge of all these uh, villages that take in the, the, the kids. And uh, these are the folk who vilified the scores of Jewish settlements in Palestine, which took in thousands of Jewish children, sleeping on hard cots. The older ones sleeping on hard cots so the youngsters could have soft beds, sleeping in rain-soaked tents so that the children could be in the warm buildings, giving these refugee children an affection and understanding they don't have any else in the world. And he goes on and on and on uh, to attack the uh, Agoda and the religious over here. It's a very interesting article. Just I don't want to sit here for an hour, okay? And, you know, and the, what do you call it? The, the, um, the, you know, I can't forbear. Uh, it's really quite a, a, a piece here. What's the whole blue about giving these children religious education? Most of it is as miserable as a political battle as any benighted city ward ever visited. The Agudas Israel is a foe with a Jewish agency, having fought tooth and nail. Religion is a great weapon with, to stick somebody knife in the back. Uh, and something about the Nazis. But the Agudas Israel also has another foe, the Mizrahi. The Mizrahi contend that they are also custodians of God's word, but they're Zionists. But the Agudas says anyone who gets Mizrahi mixed up with the Zionists can't be Orthodox. It goes on and on and on, uh, right? And um, 13-year-old boys, 14-year-old followers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Agudas says to these kids, you'll put on a capota, sit in a bench, or I'll send you right back to the Nazis. Which, of course, is stupid. They never said that. And all this kind of stuff is permitted to pass as Judaism in 1943. Well, and it goes on and on. So you can imagine, that's why Rabbi Schwab wrote that or uh, that letter to the uh, editor that I mentioned last week. Um but that was a relatively short and dignified letter. What was really interesting is Henry Cohn, who was not a rabbi, it was just a balabas, but was an agudist, as I said before. He was a good ideologist, and he read all this, whatever's in English, and the good ideology, already from the 20s and 30s, I think. And, um, uh, you know, <laughs> a very straight shooter. And so he has this uh, letter to the editor here where he says... It is difficult to understand how a magazine that wishes... Um, uh, the pages are a little fuzzy here. I'm doing my best to read it. It's difficult to understand how a magazine that wishes to be known as the, the Jewish Times could unblushingly publish such an article as appeared and the misleading heading in the lobbies called Heard... This shouldn't be... The title shouldn't be heard in the lobbies. The title should be heard of the Berlin... Uh, uh, what do you call it? Shortwave. That would have been a better title for this. In other words, this is like Nazism, what this guy said. The author of this infamous bit of disinformation uh, you have published uh, falls short, fall short of a devastating attack on a good as Israel that it was intended to be. Rather, it shows a deplorable ignorance or deplorable disregard of the truth of Judaism, or history indeed, of current events. Among other things, he decries the calumniation of Henrietta Zoll by the Agudas Israel, who he naturally links with the Nazis on the one hand and the Arab appeasers on the other. Perhaps he's been too busy hearing things in the lobby to have read a recent uh, article 
in the columns of the Jewish Times in which this same lady, Henry and his old, was none too gently assailed over the raked over the coals, hauled over the coals for joining head of Hebrew University and trying to kiss up to the Arabs. I cannot speak for our good as Israel. I shall make no attempt to do so. Its leaders and spokesmen, maligned by the sneering, hate-inspired, vicious misstatements of the article, including, and not by coincidence, they include, in other words, the Agudas Israel includes um, the greatest and most saintly of Jewry's living scholars and statesmen and, and laymen. That's what seems to irk this Talmud-despising, Goebbels-toned writer of yours. I myself express merely as a Jew, I, I express myself merely as a Jew who believes in the divinity of the Torah, the sanctity of our laws and traditions, the holiness of our people. This Judaism, quote-unquote, of later years has had many interpretations, but it's still, in other words, he's talking about reform and all that, but still, it still has and always will have but one meaning, the observance by the Jewish people in every phase of life and thought of the written law of the Torah and the oral law of the Talmud and the Shulchan Aruch. The Jewish religion recognizes the fact that all is heaven ordained except the fear of it. Notice, Hakol that's what he's saying. That every man is given freedom of choice to believe and observe his beliefs in his own fashion. Judaism merely reserves the logical right to deny the use of its name in any hyphenated form to any group or faction that denies the basic tenets of Judaism. Even the words Orthodox Judaism has become a meaningless, misleading term because it has come to be used to denote not only the faith of a sincere observer of traditional Judaism, but also the nominal affiliation of any freethinker who rents a seat in a quote-unquote Orthodox synagogue for one or two days a year. <laughs> so here he's talking about the old days in which so many of the Orthodox shoals were full of people that weren't from. And, you know, and here's a guy who takes it seriously. I'm going back. The path of Jewish history is marked with many long-forgotten movements to modernize this quote-unquote ancient religion and to bring it up to date by bringing it down to the level of the fads and pseudoscientific theories of each particular era. In our own generation, the futility of such modernization is already beginning to be tacitly admitted by the steadily by the steady addition to a stripped down Judaism of many ancient customs and ceremonies that were discarded and outmoded not so long ago. So what he means by that is the reform in the beginning dropped everything. And then starting in the thirties or forties, they brought back uh, Atalas and they brought back, you know, uh, some uh, you know, Jewish ceremonies and customs. And so he means like that. So even the reform admits they went too far. A strange sight indeed is a quote-unquote Judaism decked out with those empty ceremonials that it, called, it was called into being to scrap. So in other words, the reform looks silly. You have a rabbi standing there with a talus and no yarmulke, so to speak. Ceremonials that are not observed as mitzvahs, not as living symbols of the development of the Jewish soul and its allegiance to the Almighty, that's not what they have, but only to inject some semblance of Jewish warmth into cold, almost non-denominational services. And and his wife, by the way, came from a Reformed family <laughs> you know, originally. So he knows. A Kiddush without Shabbos? A Pesach without the deliverance from Egypt? This Bible fable, quote-unquote, not accepted in the best circles. A Shavuos without a divine Torah? 
a holy and secularized and dev- a holy land, secularized and devo- de- devoid of holiness, Zionism without a thought for or belief in the one to whom Zion belongs, and that kind of stuff and nonsense is permitted to pass as Judaism in 1943, to borrow a quotation from your columnist. And now in the Jewish scene, we have an American Jewish conference that was in, you know, all the organizations. That certainly is an American because there's no democratic procedure. It's, that's the real Americanism. And here he's calling the emperor has no clothes because all the federation is not really democratic. Nor Jewish, if it's, denom- if it's to be dominated by one of the power-hungry groups of professional, quote-unquote, Jewish leaders who are fighting for control. As long as any group, be it a good as Israel or any other, lives by the spirit of the Torah, it can speak and act in the name of Judaism. As long as any group or individual of any political persuasion does not abide by the tenets of Judaism, it cannot speak for any religion other than its own. Sign Henry P. Cohn. So that's actually a very eloquent but uh, sharp uh, letter. It's the only one I ever saw from him. So obviously some, this, something really ticked him off. Uh, I want to give a, uh, a postscript to this. This uh, incident of the Yalde Tehran is uh, very interesting because in the end, what happened was most of the kids were taken by the Zionists. A few were given to a good, a few were given to Mizrahi. I mean, that's the bottom line. Okay? And uh, this is, uh, you know, the Pandavisharov got him started with the Batiavos, and he actually negotiated successfully with Henry and his old, if you want to be honest about it, to get some of the kids and take care of them and all the rest of it. Notice they got money, you know, from the from the Federation, from the Joint, and so forth. But Rove of the kids, I think, if I remember correctly, ended up in non-from institutions. All right. Although, to tell you the truth, it compared to the six million that were getting killed, it looks like a little incident. But you see, at that time, it was a big deal. So people were angry at the Agoda, as you see from this column, uh, for making a whole big stink out of this. Uh, and uh, you see the high temp- tempers on both sides of the issue. Because Henry Pico is not the only guy that felt this way. All the from people, the Agoda types, felt this way. Uh, just they weren't as, as uh, articulate. Frankly, most of them didn't know English so well. So uh, this is characteristic of this. And now the question is like this. Is this just an incident, or does this have a long-term significance? I'm going to tell you something that most people don't realize, uh, and it has a long-term significance, uh, and it's just surprising. Now, listen well. This occasion with the Tehran children was a fairly rare occasion, which you had orphans in the middle of a war that were kind of helpless, and, you know, uh, were glad just to be alive, and glad to be taken there as Israel. They were. And what their final religious upbringing is, it became, like I say, a political football. But the Aguda did give the Zionists a black eye. And they certainly didn't like the bad publicity that came out of all this. Even if the Aguda wasn't successful in, quote-unquote, securing control of the kids. But they did not like the black eye. And as a result... You never had afterwards, as far as I'm aware, a situation in which Ashkenazi children, European children, were forced into these kind of non-form frameworks. Instead, after 48, they did it to the Yemenites and to the Sephardim. You know what I'm saying? After 48, 49, when Israel became a state, as far as I'm aware, you didn't have a situation where somebody from came over 
and was pressured or forced into, you know, some kind of non-from framework in which he had to be Michal Shabbos and all the rest of it. Some people drifted into that, but they didn't want to make a stink out of that. Instead, they did it to people who had no voice. And that was your uh, Edod HaMizrach, uh, the Yemenites, and, uh, and others, uh, which indeed became a scandal. Uh, the first Israeli government fell in uh, late 49 or 50 over the question of what's happening to the, to the Yemenite kids. Um, you understand what I'm saying? Ben-Gurion, let me be very uh, exact. When Israel became a state, so um, you have 120 in the Knesset. So the magic number is 61. And the leader of the biggest party was Ben-Gurion, the Mapai party, which had 45, I think. So 45 is not 61. So what do you need? Another 16 uh, seats to back you at least. And for various reasons, uh, when they formed the first Israeli government after the War of Independence was over, so it was the Mapai party on the one hand, which is completely not from, but it also was the, uh, also including coalition, the what they call Chazid Datit, the religious front, which for a while, for a few years, was a combination of the Agudah Mizrahi. I don't know if you know this, but the Agudah Mizrahi joined together uh, for a while to be in the government and in the coalition. There was one or two other parties over there, but the heart of it was Ben-Gurion's got 45, and the religious together, the Agudah Mizrahi is 16. That gives you 61. And like I say, he had a, a few others in there, the Progressive Party, whatever. And that's how he ran the country. So this is a parliamentary government. That means, and a unicameral one also. So that means that, you know, Ben-Gurion's like this, I'm forming a government, and we're going to make all the decisions. Uh, if there's ever a vote, we have at least 61, so we always win every vote. Um, but that means that the other parties in the coalition you know, play ball, agree. Um, if some issue arose that uh, could cause trouble, they can say like this, we're not in the coalition anymore. Now today, in the modern state of Israel, today, in 21st century, happen all the time. Uh, I don't follow all the politics, but, you know, Bennett and, and Lapid had a party, and now they don't, because some of these little groups said, we're not going uh, we're gonna, not gonna to vote for you. That's why they're, they're going back to elections. Uh, in Ben-Gurion's time, he was always the prime minister. So, but from time to time, the government fell, and he and he said like this: He said, "Okay, then we then the government no longer commands sixty-one votes, uh, and he's resigning." But in Israel, when you resign, you still remain in office until until the situation is fixed. And he always made it that they had these crises, and the government would fall, but then it would be reconstituted. So that's what happened. The religious parties many times they said like this: "We're leaving," and then. After they did that, they hooked up back again, and therefore, de facto, Ben-Gurion stayed, you know, for for years and years and years as the prime minister. So the first, so w- when when Israel became a state, and the Agudah, for example, the Mizrahi is part of the government, you're not going to have a situation where, let's say, for example, a kid makes, a from kid makes Aliyah in 49, 50, 51, 52, let's say, for example, from Romania, from Hungary, Czechoslovakia, from Poland, if there was such a thing. If they landed in Israel, 
if they wish to, you know, and they're Ashkenazim, they're white, so to speak. So uh, they can go to, you know, a good framework, as we would call it. You can move to Bnei Brak, Yerushalayim, or something like that. And if you want to send your kids, I mean, if you care enough about it, if you care enough about it, you can go to a place where it's from day schools and where it's basically for the girls. They had, they didn't have a lot, but they had. And nobody said boo. If you want a job with the government and you want to kiss up to them, then it's a little more tricky. You know, uh, that's complicated. I know people from my speeches in Baltimore, people come over to me afterwards and tell me about their family's experiences. I knew a religious guy, a from guy, who said his father had some kind of a job. Notice he, he made Aliyah, you know, in 49. And uh, he wanted to get some kind of job with the administration. I forget what. And he had to kiss up to them to join them at a pie party and vote for them and have the special red card that means he belonged to the party. But they didn't make him be Michal Shabbos or anything like that. So, again, if you were an Ashkenazic Jew, then you weren't bothered in being from. However, if you were not, then we were viewed as not white and as a exploitable kind of a population and could really screw them over. And those people were forced in many times to come on from the same thing happened to the Alde Tehran, you know. So you have all the Yemenites and the other kids, they, they, they got off the boat and they got their payas, took off their yarmulkes and the whole, and they, they, they put them in special communities. And they really uh, did a number on them, which they resent at a uh, uh, One of the uh, m- uh, basic dynamics of Israeli politics, Arayomazeh is the uh, hatred that the, uh, I'll call Sephardi masses, have towards um, towards uh, the, the left. Uh, you know, those kind of parties, the left, which are down now to nothing. And the reason is because they, 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 they experienced what I just described as a kind of a rape. And there's a whole literature on it. And, you know, the left has tried to say, well, that was long ago, this and that, the other, and we're sorry, and so on and so forth. It's still there. And they destroyed their family structure, and they destroyed the Yiddishkeit, and it, and it, and it bothers them. And Avadi Yosef, as you know, built a, a Shas party based on the idea of the Hachzai to try to restore the glory that was taken from us. Taken us from by who? You see? Taken us by who? So, to conclude, the effect of the Yalde Tehran affair, as far as I can see, was that um, the Zionists saw, if you mess with, with European kids, uh, you know, they're good and all these guys will come out in full force because that's who they are. If you mess with the Sephardim, you can get away with it more. Uh, which is a shame, but nevertheless, it's a, an interesting um, reality uh, that dominates, you know, is, is Israeli culture, as I say before, uh, down till today. This is how Bibi and these guys get these votes, you know what I'm saying? Because really, you know, they're, they're channeling the resentment that a lot of these Sephardic masses have towards the Labor Party or any kind of replacement for the Labor Party or the left-wing parties, even though the left-wing parties are like this. Oh, we're for the masses, and we're in favor of the people, and 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 so forth. So, um, is this very interesting? The final effects of this. So, the kind of letter that Henry Picon wrote, if you multiply that hundred times, which was written in all kind of other magazines, made such a stink out of the whole business that uh, 
that the Zionists kind of backed off. I think that's just an interesting little tidbit of, of uh, very important Israeli cultural history. Uh, I've gone long enough on this. So, uh, as I say before, I just wanted to mention this uh, this episode and this letter. Um, I could talk on it and on it, but uh, I just want to thank Morris Friedman, Dr. Mo, for sponsoring this today. And um, I'm really dragging everybody into old Baltimore history over here. But it has, as I say before, a kind of uh, um, significance which is outside the confines, literally, of this uh, small community. Although Baltimore is not a small community, and uh, is a piece of Americana, American Jewish history uh, from yesteryear, from an era that no longer exists. Because today we're now in the uh, day school era, the yeshiva era, the kolel era. You know, these are things that were unthinkable, you know, back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, so the world has, uh, you know, moved on. But then again, history is nothing but a chronicle of change. Anyway, once again, I want to thank uh, Dr. Mo. With that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.